Welcome to Asbury Pod. Today, we talk to Tom Cheswick, resident writer and docent at the Stephen Crane House here in Asbury Park, and learn a little bit about the time young Stephen Crane spent here with his family, as well as what Tom was doing before he came to Asbury Park, and what does Clifford the Big Red Dog have to do with it? Welcome, Tom. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Everything you need to know. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Bennies are welcome and Shoebies too. From Route 35 to Convention Hall, Asbury Pod covers it all. Asbury Pod, I love you. I love you. Uh, good afternoon, Asbury Park listeners. We're taping on Saturday, December 3rd, the Stephen Crane House, and very, very excited to have Tom Chesick. Uh, on our podcast today to talk a little bit about the Stephen Crane House, a little bit about what brought you to Asbury Park, um, writing career. So, Tom, do you want to do a quick introduction? Well, my name is Tom Chesick. I am uh, trying to encapsulate everything I do at the Crane House, and I think the best way to do it is to call myself the creepy old caretaker. <laughs> but... Uh, a more nuanced version of that would be uh, writer-in-residence, chief docent, and board member of the Asbury Park Historical Society, which has owned this house since 2015. It was donated to the Historical Society by the previous private owner, Mr. Frank D'Alessandro, a great friend of ours and one of the people who helped rescue and revive this place over the years in the new century. A longtime resident of Asbury Park. And yes, indeed. Not he, anymore, though. And yeah, recently moved out, right? My, right. Uh, my wife uh, had him as a teacher, I believe, in high school. So did I, yeah. Did you? Back in Middletown <laughs> High School. Yes, Middletown. He was the cool teacher with the shoulder-length flowing hair, if you can picture that. Wow, <laughs> wow. And where is he now? Uh, he has moved to Middlesex County with his husband, Eric. Nice. And uh, he sold... The cottage in the back of this property, that's now under different ownership than the crane house up front. So we just have to be neighborly and share this little patch of turf as best we can. Mm-hmm. And Tom, we have to talk a little bit about what brought you to Asbury Park. Our joke is obviously bankruptcy or breakup. Well, so. That's right, yes. Uh, well, given that choice, it was obviously <laughs> bankruptcy in my case. All right. We always like, love a good bankruptcy. Joe yeah. and I are breakups, although probably on the verge of bankruptcy. Both yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a breakup in that case. My wife came with me to Asbury. <laughs> it's a collective bankruptcy. Right? Yes, we had been living in, in Atlantic Highlands prior to that. And uh, But I've always done a lot of time in Asbury Park, certainly over the years. Growing and when up did you and, come? Pardon? When did you come to Asbury? Uh, that would be the summer of 2011. 
So we're going to come up on a, a dozen years, not too long ago from mm-hmm. now. And, uh, oh, Asbury has, as you can probably gather, uh, gone through a lot of changes just within that short period of time. Absolutely. I'd say I, I've been here over 20 years, and the biggest period of change has been in the last, say, seven. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and are you a Jersey boy? I am, yes. Uh, originally from Newark. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my parents moved us to Middletown, to the very dreariest part of Middletown. Uh, so Middletown seems tough. It is, yes. And uh, so Asbury Park was a big draw, as was just about any place that wasn't Middletown back then. Yeah, but I no, made some good I, friends I the there, including experience. Frank D'Alessandro. Um, and also, didn't I'm going to say I'm going to be wrong on this, but why do I feel like the Crane family founded like Newark? They're from Newark. They're from Newark. The Crane family. The, fa- the grandfather might have been a founder of Elizabethtown, which is now Elizabeth. But not Newark. Not Newark. No. Well, Stephen was uh, born in Newark in a rectory house. His father was a very prominent clergyman up in North Jersey. And uh, they tore that house down in the 1930s. The city could not maintain it during the Depression. They wound up making a memorial wall with a plaque honoring Crane out of some of the bricks from the house, and they tore that down in the 1990s. So in his birthplace, there's really not a trace of him other than an apartment complex named after him. So the whole deal is uh, the crane house here in Asbury Park, where he lived off and on for about 10 years. I say off and on because he made a, his mother made many attempts to further his education at various boarding schools, mm-hmm. none of which really panned out. He would come back here every summer after graduating Asbury High School, to work for his brother, who had a news syndicate, a news service, and uh, he covered the comings and goings of hotel guests out on the boardwalk, which every newspaper printed back then. That was something that people wanted to read, who was staying in town and for how long and at which hotel. This was during the Gilded Age of Asbury Park, the founder Bradley years. Oh, wow. Before we get to Stephen Crane, I know I'm the one who jumped into it. You wrote for Gannett, Asbury Park Press Coaster, and legend, and you wrote a book, Legendary Locals, which I have. That's right. Yes, and you're in it, right? You're legendary. I am, I am in it. Is it, is it the my appendix or a full chapter? My claim to fame is always that marriage <laughs> on the boardwalk. That is always oh. my claim to fame. Well, and I was there. Which I, was I wasn't even going to do. Uh. But somebody asked me to do it, who was working for a gay, gay rights organization, a woman named Meredith DeMarco and yeah. Kiki Tomac right. were like, hey, if you want to get married, you have to like fill out this paperwork. You have to do all this stuff. So, uh, but for those two people, I would never have even done it. And that is like, that is 100% my claim to fame. It's always the yeah. first thing that comes up if you Google my name. I think that's a, per- you know, it'll be a permanent fixture of, oh, totally. as, of the Boardwalk Museum 100 years from now. Thank that's you, right. Kiki Tomac <laughs> and Meredith DeMarco. Um, but Tom, I want to talk to you a little bit. Have we had press right oh we had gladden so that would have been a press writer but tell us about working um tell us about being a reporter and then tell us um you know a little bit about how the book came about well as far as the asbury park press goes i was never a staffer there i was just a stringer in fact i was their theater critic for many years and uh basically arts and entertainment journalist is being a theater critic a cool job it could be yeah um although you have to sit through a lot of uh not very good plays. I was going to say, I assume yeah. you offend people at some point. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, that's something I, that was kind of the deep end of the pool that I was thrown into there for a while, not having ever really dabbled in that whatsoever. Uh, mostly I wrote about bands and stuff prior to that, which I did a little bit. 
still for Gannett, and, uh, but they got rid of all their freelancers at the beginning of 2017. So I still work part-time for the coaster. Occasionally you'll see something I do in there. I do. Just to keep my hand in there. One of the very, very last of the local weekly newspapers. And uh, all credit to Ellen and Mike and everybody for uh, surviving the pandemic, which a lot of other little newspapers did not, including The Link in Long Branch, which I had also written for. Mm-hmm. But I started in little weekly newspapers way back when, back in the 1970s, and uh, kind of come full circle after working in uh, children's publishing and Madison Avenue advertising and all kinds of other stuff in between. So here I am at the Crane House, which I uh, didn't really picture myself doing, <laughs> but uh, kind of wound up there because, uh, well, Frank needed some help. Uh place was getting a little much for one man to maintain and program and all that, and so when my wife and I uh, became kind of free agents, as far as housing goes, uh, we moved in here. That was in 2011. And uh, Frank maintained a seat on the board of the Asbury Park Historical Society for a while after that, until he resigned later. And uh, bit by bit, I started helping him out with the programming and conducting the tours of the place. And so by this point, I've given tours to hundreds and hundreds of people from literally all over the world. I mean, they, they show up at our doorstep on uh, open house days, coming from Australia, all over Europe, people from Japan, just about anywhere, sometimes even down the street. A lot <laughs> of people who live down the street have never been in this house. Well, I, I was saying uh, yesterday, in anticipation of coming here, that I've been here 15 years, I've, I have not been here, despite being a Stephen Crane fan. Um, and I'm very glad to be here, and I'll... I'm going to take a look around when we're done. When we're done. Yeah. Well, Stephen Crane remains the attraction here. Uh, well, I have surprised. to ask one more question about the theater critic thing, Tom, only because I don't know that we've ever had a theater critic no. on. So when you review <laughs> plays, you know when like people are selling dumpy houses, they say things like charming or, <laughs> you know, needs a little more, a fixer-upper <laughs> to say... As opposed to say total dump. Mm. So when you're reviewing plays, tell me, like, when you review a good play, I assume that's pretty easy. But when you're reviewing a play that's not good, but you 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 appreciate the effort, what, what kind of words are you using to not totally alienate people? Well, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because it brings immediately to mind uh, adjectives like game, G-A-M-E, <laughs> a game effort. Oh, okay. Spirited <laughs> effort. Oh, lots of spirited <laughs> people out there. Yeah. Oh, too funny. Do you, uh, you know, is it, is it, sometimes do you make a choice not to review something? In other words, I always thought I'd be, I, I, I flirted with the idea of like starting a restaurant review, but I would, if I didn't like a place, I wouldn't write the review. Would, yeah, I think right? would, in other or words, movies. I feel the same way. I'm you don't want to kill a movie that you, that tried, that, that really try. tried. No, some movies deserve. Agreed. So, but I think restaurants, if they're making a, a game effort, <laughs> and it's a, <laughs> A spirited attempt. You don't want to destroy someone's business. So right. I always thought, like, I would just, I'll skip this restaurant. I'll just only write about places I like. But you can't really do that if you're a theater critic because you have to, whatever's in town or popular, you're, you're required to go. Right. Well, that was the assignment, and I had to fulfill the assignments on opening night. And, yeah. Uh, I remember many long nights after returning home from the theater, uh, just staring at a blank screen, wondering how I was going to accomplish this somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't do that anymore. Um, I don't know. I don't particularly miss it, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it's a little fascinating to me. Just that, just the idea of being a theater. I mean, do we even have theater critics anymore? Not really. 
Not on any uh, regular basis in any of the local media. I think the, the Times has it for Broadway and New, New well, York yeah, City pro productions, but it. nothing... Uh, I mean, the, I don't think the Asbury Park Well, social bombs. media has kind of um, supplanted the whole idea. Well, someone on YouTube critic. is holding it down. Yeah. Including restaurants, of course. You know, every restaurant has wondrous reviews and horrible reviews sharing yeah. the same space. Well, yeah, sorry, I digress on that. that well, social media is the worst I, because, you know, I, I was a, a line cook for a restaurant for, you know, for seven years of my life, and there's always someone I totally. who goes out. I used to call them, there were customers who used to come to the restaurant specifically to have a bad time. <clears throat> In other words, they didn't, they weren't happy till they sent something back and they cannot wait to tell their friends. Before social media, the damage was limited, but now it's like, I'm going to give you a one, one star Yelp would give zero if I could, you know, and they'll go on to, then they'll go on to Google reviews. They'll delete it everywhere. So one, they'll multiply their voice far beyond their reach. And so restaurants have to scramble. It's like, you know, I know somebody liked it. You know, because if I go to a restaurant, I feel pretty good about it. I don't bother with Yelp. I'm like, that's oh, pretty good. Like, I'm not in, I'm not engaged in that. Nobody way. bothers with compliments. That's part. Of, that's a little bit of the problem, right? right? But um, I don't know. I can't remember the point. But anyway, there's a uh, favorite play, Tom. Pardon? Favorite play? Oh boy, I'm not really prepared to answer that. I'd okay, give I'm you sorry a for putting you on the spot. Uh, different response every single day. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, my but, mother uh, and I, I, I do prefer. Uh, straight dramatic plays to musicals actually which mm -hmm. is anathema to a lot of theater I, I i love drama plays so when i was i grew up not middletown but marlboro which is an, it is very similar and it was a little torturous for me as well but one thing that my mother and i my mother loves plays um and we would go into new york on the on the wednesdays on the twofers and we'd go see at least two plays we'd see an afternoon and an evening one um she liked musicals more than me like i hated carousel Mm. I just hated it. But there was this play, it was this little play called Rumors that I loved. I thought it was such a great play. Anyway, I don't love musicals, but I do actually love plays. And, and unfortunately, after the pandemic, I never get to them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've still got New Jersey rep in Long Branch. Mm -hmm. which, uh, and, you know, the Asbury Park, we should have the theater guys on. We have an Asbury yeah. Park theater company that's trying, well, which, which well, happens every couple of years. Well, they shows in Asbury Park. Right now, they've got the Million Dollar Quartet going on in Ocean Grove. Well, they did, um, didn't they do the uh, Berkeley? They did the Green Day play? The, oh, that's the company true, yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah, they did the... Um, the Asbury Park Theater American company. American Idiot. American right. Idiot, they did mm -hmm. at Berkeley. We should have them on one. And here's well, what I'll say. these are all uh, done through uh, Remember Jones. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'll also say is that every couple of years, whether it's premiere or revision or every couple of years, there have been multiple theater companies trying to, to make it in Asbury. And for whatever reason, it, it has not turned out to be sustainable for right. them. Well, we don't have Remember a revision over at the Carousel. They did several yeah. seasons in the summer there at the Carousel. I loved house. it. They did hairspray where yes. everyone took their clothes off, and I, and me and my mom were like, "Oh my goodness!" Oh, hair, hair, hair. They yeah. did hair. You're right, hair, hair, and hairspray. Took are, their clothes off. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing hairspray with everybody taking their clothes. Yeah, off. Yeah, that'd me be too. Good. So, well, I think there's no fixed space. I'm gonna I, patent that idea. I think you mentioned, uh, Tom, that they 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 do productions over in Ocean Grove, and then. Theater in that old high school is magnificent. For mm -hmm. a high school theater, that's you know, where they're doing their December plan. You know, I think if we can, is, can Asbury, as a council person, as uh, can Asbury Park annex that building and declare it Asbury sure. Park? We'll take then, it right now. I'll call up the city manager. <laughs> say, can we, we call dibs on that building. Yeah, can we rush it? It'll, you know, let's go and take it, and uh, because it's really a, a fantastic place, and I think you could have concerts there, speakers there, but because it's outside of Asbury. 
you know, even though, even though it's like 200 yards outside of Masbury Park, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit, right? Um, but I think that's the problem with theater here is there's no fixed venue like that anymore here. I don't know what the high school theater looks like. It's actually amazing. The it high is school, very nice, it's, yeah. It's beautiful. Well, it's maybe we should start theater. doing it there. But. Uh, well, then you have to go through the Board of Ed, which it wouldn't be a bad idea, but I think the Asbury Park Theater Company is thinking that. And then we lost the Paramount, which was a beautiful theater. Right, right. And I guess... Well, From House what people tell me, House, done little they say that it costs a fortune to yeah. so do House of Independence. I don't, I wouldn't know, but anyway, mm-hmm. we digress, and we're, we're. I'm sorry, I'm the one who's digressing it. Well, but. another thing I've done on my resume is I worked in children's publishing, as I mentioned, and uh, worked for Scholastic Incorporated for a number of years. Oh my goodness! I used to get uh, the Scholastic books. Yeah, yeah. Well, we I uh, ghost illustrated a lot of books, things like Clifford the Big Red Dog. Wow! Oh my goodness. Of, uh, really? You'll never see my name on any of them, of course, but oh. it was a good gig to have. I did art for uh, almost all of the. Little Bill series from Bill Cosby, which uh, I guess we're not talking about anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. But uh, Berenstain Bears, other things. Oh like my that, God. You know? oh my. When you say you, explain to me what that means when you say you guessed. Ghost Illustrated. Ghost yeah, Illustrated. Well, you know, the creator of the book gets their name on it. But uh, you do in the most actual cases, drawing. They probably haven't done any of the books since like the first one. That's the way it goes. But, oh, wow. Uh, it, like I said, it was a good gig, and I certainly didn't mind you know, doing things in other people's style. Wow. And, you know, I was working in downtown Manhattan, and that was fun, you know. Wow. But that all came to an end right around 9-11, as yeah. it turns out. Yeah, I never worked in the city again after that. And um, Where was the Scholastic building? Down in Soho. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, uh, legend- can we talk a little bit about Legendary Locals? Like, wh- Where did that sure. idea come from? Well, the idea was not mine, of course. This was a series that was being published by Arcadia Publishing, a division of the History Press. And so if you look in their catalog online, you'll see there were probably at least a couple hundred editions of Legendary Locals books for communities all over the United States, and all written by different people. And I saw that nobody had claimed Asbury Park, so I figured I'd have the audacity to do so, (laughs) having only lived in town for uh, less than four years at that point. Uh I'm not an Asbury Park native, but uh, if I represent anything at all, it's uh, the many, many people, many generations of people who have come here from other places because they love Asbury Park. The many generations of people who have experienced bankruptcy or breakup (laughs) uh, ended up here in Asbury Park. Who so, run from their problems or need a cheap place to yeah. live. So I think, I, I mean, I haven't picked that up. I, I want a copy now. And maybe we I can, have a copy. It oh, is still in print as far as I know. I'll buy and, it. Um, yeah. You could probably find it. I'm guessing Amazon. the co-op has it now. Wouldn't they have it? Oh, yeah, Asbury Park so. co-op. Well, maybe I'll stop there on the way after this, after after today. If you can't yeah. find it, I have a copy. Okay. I, may have a co- I may have a couple of copies. I am working on another book, actually. Another book about Asbury Park. Oh, um, pray tell. Not really sure what form it's going to take right now. I have so much material to deal with. But you might remember that back during 2021, which was the 150th anniversary year of Asbury Park. The centennial, Park, right? Yeah, I was doing uh, almost daily This Day in Asbury Park history posts mm-hmm. on social media which were quite long and rambling. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, I enjoyed them. But I which got them. like thousands and thousands of it views. Was, it was one of the cases. positive things on social media, Tom, so yeah. kudos to you. So I've got all that stuff in the can, you know? It's practically written. It just has to be edited down because it's so long. But uh, kind of a day-by-day guide to Asbury Park history. And what was the centennial? Just describe that for our listeners. Uh, sesquicentennial, if you can wrap your head around that. I cannot. There. That is so. the 150th anniversary of the 1871 founding of Asbury Park. Hmm. 
by our pal James Bradley. And uh, yeah, the city had uh, once before done a centennial celebration in 1974, which was not keyed to the actual founding of the city, but to when it became part of Ocean Township in 1874, which is kind of a weird year to pick. Because right, there's nothing here, right? Well, was there still was a quite parcel? a bit by 1874. This mm-hmm. town grew like overnight. It was ah. a real boom town. Okay. But it wasn't a self-contained municipality. You know, it wasn't a city unto itself. It was part of Ocean mm. Township. It wasn't incorporated. Uh-huh. So 1871 is when it was incorporated as Asbury no, Park? No, that's when it was founded altogether. That's when James okay. Bradley purchased the land that would become Asbury Park and started okay. mapping out uh, streets and assigning numbers to all these different lots and starting to sell them off one by one. But it was not then called Asbury Park at that time. Yes, it was actually. Oh, it was called Asbury Park at that time. That was his vision of a pious paradise by the sea, restful and healthful, which, of course, it has remained all these years. (laughs) Now, he wanted to make another Ocean Grove, you know, because he was a hardcore Methodist, he and his wife. I thought he looked down on Ocean Grove as sort of a... No, actually, he he wanted to make another Ocean Grove. Oh, okay. But at the same time, you know, he was a capitalist. Right. And he was selling off all his lots for money. And before he knew it, he lost his control of uh, his vision for this place. And he considered Asbury Park to be a failure by the mm. time he finally divested himself. Isn't that interesting? The, yeah. first, the first of many who thought Asbury Park was Absolutely. a failure. Yeah. You know, this brings us back to uh, Stephen Crane, though, because you mentioned that Asbury was a boom town. Because I noticed in, you know, in his biography that his brother, as you mentioned earlier, uh, was a newspaper man and had right. was part of the AP, and uh, and the, or the uh, worked for the Associated Press. But there was a he was like the Long Branch bureau for the New York Tribune, if I understand that correctly. Well, it was um, he was the owner of uh, Crane's news service, hmm. and what he would do was act as a syndicate. He would sell stories to papers like the Philly Inquirer and the New York World and such. Was that related to the the, the modern Cranes? Uh, the the financial paper that lasted uh, no, until different spelling different, in that okay, case. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know that the reason I brought that up is that you know, it, that Long Branch and Asbury Park were worthy of news notice nationally. Oh yeah, they were yeah. big time resorts, yeah. big attractions, and uh, you know for a very well heeled crowd. You know, yeah. this wasn't a working class sort of resort back then. No, but you know Bradley had uh, envisioned a, a healthful paradise, but as I said. You know, the more he sold off his properties, uh, a healthful and well right I mean, the and words very pious that never and dry. And were no, none of those words describe Asbury Park to me, which <laughs> Not is, the which is we interesting. Love, at least. Well, I mean, right? sin, sin makes the world go round. Goodness really, gracious. Yeah. I would well, never you know, think I, of I've this called, place uh, that way. You know, James Bradley made his fortune in peddling horse brushes to the Union Army in the Civil War. So I call him Daddy Warbrush. He <laughs> uh, was capitalist. Yeah. And uh, unlike the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, which maintained ownership and control of their turf, you know, the capitalist in him eventually won out over the, uh, you know, the Methodist visionary. And mm-hmm. he would sell and sell and sell, you know. But he also donated, you know, big tracts of land for schools and churches and parks here in town. Mm-hmm. He's a controversial figure, of course, you know, a complicated guy, but an interesting one if you look into him. Totally. You know, we all uh, have had to take sides about his statue and stuff. I avoid that question like grim death, Tom. <laughs> well, I charge into it. We're going to cut, we're gonna cut this, out, this part out. Please <laughs> <laughs> um, do. Well, my stock answer to that is... Uh, if you take the aerial view of the park and the adjacent park, uh, 
There's the circle where the Bradley statue sits on, and there's another circle that doesn't have a statue. So let's find a statue to balance Bradley out. All right. You know, yeah, I'm going to remain Switzerland on this issue, yeah. Tom. <laughs> so, um, so Stephen Crane uh, was born, like you, in Newark, right? In Newark. Um, but I was just shocked. The, the, the last of 14 children. Yeah. And his mother was 45 years old when she had him. Yeah. Which, oh, my uh, I God. I can't even imagine that. Well, that Jesus. was 1871. I was going to you know? say, they didn't have the IVF and all the crap they that we did have to not. No, everything was a home birth. And I'm sure that uh, he probably wasn't really planned no. coming along so long after his other siblings, most of which had grown up to be adults by that time. And, uh, you know, only eight of the Crane children survived to adulthood, which unfortunately was pretty par for the course back then in the 19th century. Yeah. But uh, when Mrs. Crane moved here, Mary Helen Peck Crane, who everybody called Helen, um, she only had Stephen in tow with her, who was her last school-age child, and one of Stephen's sisters, Agnes, who was kind of the de facto mom for Stephen, because Mrs. Crane was a very, very busy woman. Um, she traveled a lot, actually. She was the celebrity of the family. She was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union chapter of Asbury Park and Ocean Grove, which was one of the premier chapters of that organization in America. Mm-hmm. And she would travel up and down the East Coast. She would go to places like Atlanta and Florida and up to New England, helping to set up other chapters in other cities and writing guidebooks that were used extensively by the organization. And she was an in-demand public speaker for her famous fire and brimstone sermons on the evils of drink. Mm-hmm. And I've read some of the print stuff that she wrote on that topic. And, man, that prose is, uh, it just burns off the page. You can just imagine what she was like on stage. Well, the, the, the women behind the Temperance Union nationwide were remarkable people, um, which is why they won uh, that argument. Um, and maybe that's another podcast, but you know, in terms of you, know, in a way, they were. Maybe this is my, maybe I'm incorrect about this, but I always thought that this particular movement was sort of one wing of actually a progressive, a Christian progressive movement rather than a conservative movement. They were like, you know, the working poor are prisoners to these alcohol capitalists. You know, let's free their bodies and souls. And it was quite an interesting. Um, uh, oh, in Carrie Nation, is it Carrie Nation? No. Yeah. She would actually go into bars and, like, destroy them <laughs> with an axe. Well, oh Helen Crane God. was a, a fascinating character yeah. and a multifaceted one. Uh, yeah. She was an activist on many fronts, um, kind of a proto-suffragist. She, of course, didn't live to see universal suffrage, but uh, she was active in an initiative to get women the right to vote in local school board elections, which was a successful one, uh, you know, a really significant baby step in that process. Um, she actually co-founded a trade school for young black women, learn how to, uh, you know, sew and, and do garment industry work. Uh, she would take in boarders hmm. in this room, actually was the old kitchen of the house that we're sitting in. And uh, she famously took in a uh, young woman who had been ostracized by her family, who was an unwed mother, and nobody else would let her live, you know, in their houses. And uh, Stephen himself uh, would describe her as more of a Christian than a Methodist. <laughs> well, I mean, Stephen Crane, um, when you read a lot of his prose, he's got a, 
you know, very dry and acerbic uh, social uh, wit about him that p- comes out uh, once in a while. Very interesting uh, um, person. And that, now maybe now we know why, where that came from. Well, you know, uh, Mrs. Crane also had a, a playful artistic side, which uh, isn't immediately evident when you consider her work for the WCTU. But she wrote uh, humorous short stories under the pen name Jerusha Ann Stubbs. <laughs> and she painted, she sculpted. Unfortunately, we don't have examples of that stuff around here. Uh, did pen and ink sketches, all kinds of stuff. In fact, uh, she and another one of the Crane sisters, Nellie, co-founded the city's very first art school here in this house. Wow. Which uh, I don't think the light is that great in this house for an art school, but there you go. And Nellie would uh, move it uh, about a year later downtown. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very first art school. So, uh, you know, this house has a real... Uh, and when you arts... say move it downtown, downtown, move it to Cookman Ave? Yeah, Cookman, I believe it was. Oh, yeah. wow. Rented space there. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that was Helen Crane. And uh, Stephen's sister, Agnes, who would see him off to school. She was a school teacher herself. And she would also die at 28, just like Stephen did. Mm-hmm. Um, was actually the very first of the Cranes to have stories and poems published in little magazines and newspapers. So she was obviously an influence on her younger brother there. Mm. And she taught here in Asbury Park, right? She did, yeah, Mm. for about a year or so before she passed away. Uh, There's a quote that's been attributed to her, which is probably apocryphal, but I like to repeat it to people, something to the effect that, Stephen, you must do what you can to distance yourself from this oyster-like family. (laughs) So that he did. He was the born rebel. And... uh, Quite Paul a re- Oster, who we had here the other day, claims that uh, Stephen had his first cigarette at the age of six and didn't stop after that. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a drinker and a gambler and a carouser and, uh, well, a lover of life, I guess you could say. He was a restless person, too. Indeed. You know, um, we maybe talked about, you know, after he leaves Asbury Park, where he ends up. But, you know, so the family comes here to Asbury Park and Stephen goes to school here Um. When does he start writing um, for newspapers? Well, he starts uh, probably around the age of 14 or thereabouts, uh, just basically collecting information, collecting notes at first for his brother, but eventually, uh, you know, writing little dispatches on his own, not bylined, of course. But uh, the University of Virginia has published volumes of his journalism from the Asbury Park years, and if you read them in sequence, you could see his writer's voice slowly starting to emerge, so that by the time he and Asbury Park were done with each other, around 1892, he was practically run out of town on a rail for uh, scandalizing the town with his prose. Yeah. I guess he insulted the, um, oh, I forgot the name of it now. Uh, Uh, There was an organization called the Junior Order of Mechanics that had a parade in town, and his assignment was simply to cover the parade. Sounds pretty innocuous, right? What is the Junior Order of Mechanics, though? Well, it was uh, kind of a trade organization, kind of with a right-wing slant to it, anti-immigrant, you know. And uh, he managed, in the space of one little account of a parade, to piss everybody off, from the well-to-do people who vacationed in Asbury Park to the working-class people who marched in the parade and everybody in between. And uh, the scandal went all the way to the White House, who uh, was somehow credited with costing the Republicans the White House that year because of a publisher of the paper that ran the piece was the vice presidential candidate. Oh, my so God. So Stephen lost his newspaper gig, and uh, from there, 
it was out of Asbury Park and uh, on to, uh, as uh, Joe said, a restless life, <laughs> moving here and there and living here and there and uh, basically writing his best-known stuff in New York City, where he lived uh, the life of uh, the struggling bohemian artist, for sure. Usually uh, described as looking malnourished. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean he had... Uh... He dies of tuberculosis at 28, but he probably acquired it much, much younger, right? Oh, yeah. So he probably looked tubercular, I guess. Yeah, in so. fact, uh, even during the years when he was a teenager here in Asbury Park, you know, he was described as looking sick most of the time, even though he was an athlete and uh, not a bad one. He played baseball. Yeah, great baseball player, actually, scouted by a professional team at one point. Yeah. But uh, there he- are accounts of him having to... Uh, get his meals from the families of his friends because, you know, his mother wasn't around. His sister had died by that time. It's kind of a proto-latchkey kid, I guess you could say. Huh. So, But, you know, given this... Um, so who funds this... So, you know, he enrolls at Lafayette College and eventually Syracuse, but that costs money to do that. Well, Syracuse he gets into for two reasons, none of which have to do with his academic prowess. Because he's a terrible student, apparently. <laughs> well... A brilliant guy, actually, but uh, didn't really apply himself to standard uh, schoolwork. But anyway, he gets into Syracuse because one of his uncles, Uncle Jesse Truesdale Peck, is a co-founder of Syracuse University. Okay. And the other reason is his baseball prowess. He becomes immediately the captain of the Syracuse baseball team, the only freshman captain in the United States. Hmm. He's also the catcher of the team. And this was the era in which the fastball had been perfected but not the catcher's mitt. (laughs) So he's described as uh, taking a lot of tumbles into the backstop. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, from my understanding is that he played a lot of baseball but didn't manage to go to any classes. Mm -hmm. Basically, yeah. He only attended classes for one semester at Syracuse. Now, despite that, uh, his papers and what remains of his books and such are archived there. And, uh, you know, he's got a little room in the library dedicated to him. As if he were a star student. And similarly, uh, I went to the University of Virginia. You mentioned that UVA um, has his other his newspaper writings. They have a room preserved for Ed, Edgar Allan Poe. Once did a, a, a dissipated semester there. You know, mm. d- don't know if he went to class, but they preserved a room that you can go see, and it's dressed up as if he it was period. You know, they have a stuffed raven in there and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Yeah. And so did so Stephen Crane wrote so the the book that we all had to read in middle school, the big claim to fame, Red Badge of Courage, that was written in New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were accounts of him toting that manuscript around with him for a while, in various places where he would stay, showing it to people. So you know he was probably working on it for a spell, but uh, basically and if you written were reviewing in New York, that, yeah. Tom, how are you reviewing that book? How am I reviewing it? Yeah. Uh, well, like everybody else, I was force-fed that book in middle school, as, yeah, you, mentioned, weren't we all? as you mentioned. Uh, and just by the very fact that I was being forced to read it, you know, that kind of jinxed me against it at first. But revisiting it later, um, I kind of marvel at uh, how deceptively simple it is. I mean, there are some great themes going on in that book under some very, you know, spare prose and, you know, not a great deal of detail given in that book either. But at the same time, it is both very old-timey, antique seeming you know, in its language, but also modern that way because of uh, the way he captured the voices of the 
you know, the poor kids who became soldiers in that conflict. You know, this is not an epic account of the great generals and stuff who get credited with winning the battles. When the officers appear in Red Badge, they're basically uh, figures of derision and ridicule, which uh, I think was kind of a breath of fresh air to a lot of people back then. But people still have the, you know, the mistaken impression that Stephen Crane was himself a veteran of the Civil War. You know, he was born in 1871, long after the war was over. He was never in the war, right? Right. No. But he was a war correspondent. And he saw a battle that way, working for newspapers. So he had um, seen several battles, right? The, oh, yeah. The uh, Spanish-American War and the Greek-Turkish yeah. War. So he, had, he did have eyewitness views to people dying in war. So, yeah, I think if he had lived just, a, you know, 10, 15, 20 years more, he probably would have been there on the front in World War One, and might have gotten some interesting accounts. Mm-hmm through him of that but uh you know even though he died in 1900 he's purely a man of the 19th century as uh, mr oster pointed out you know he never saw a movie <laughs> never mm-hmm. rode in a motor car no you know all that stuff but and, uh as you pointed out earlier his poetry is is very modern and really pointed the way to the 20th century it, it yeah i mean i can't remember we had been talking before the recording but i mentioned um it was shockingly modern, and you know, one reviewer called it poetic lunacy at the time, um, which he liked. He was like, oh, it's generating some buzz. <laughs> In fact, uh, yeah, he considered himself uh, to be a poet more than anything else, even though he was best known for his novels and stories. But actually, if you ask me, I think he was a journalist more than anything else, and mm-hmm. it's his journalism that really attracted him to me. And I think uh, the best of his work you know, was informed by his journalism experience, mm-hmm. which began here in Asbury Park. This is where it all began, his professional writing career out there in the boardwalk, puttering around on his bicycle or his pony around town. As he, he had did. a pony. I mean, yeah. that's, that's my favorite. I'd like a pony. We would all like a pony. Is, that a, is it legal? Or can you do something about that? So. I, don't think I, I don't think you can have ponies in Asbury. Can we have chickens? <laughs> I believe you can have chicken. Okay, well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> well, then ride around on a big chicken or something <laughs> if you can. But, uh, but I think you're right about that. When you read Crane, you know, one of the things, um, you know, when I knew we were gonna, found out we were going to talk to you, I went back to read some stuff. I didn't read Red Badge of Courage again because I don't know where my copy is, but I, I do have his collection of poetry. But I also picked up um, the article in McCall's he'd written about this, the coal mines in northeastern Pennsylvania. And when you read that, it's hard to see that as a 19th, well, it's it style, is it, a kind of journalism that is not, it's not recognizable today because a modern journalist would be like, oh, I got the call to go to northeastern Pennsylvania. They, you know, he doesn't even start with that. He starts with a sort of a very literary description you know, of a coal breaker in northeastern Pennsylvania. And my father's from that area. And if you've ever um, been, seen these coal breakers, they are, he had one, you know, he had a coal breaker you know, about a quarter mile in the back of his house. So growing up in the shadow of these things, there are monstrosities. You have to look at these pictures. And his description of that really struck a nerve when you read it. If you're from northeastern Pennsylvania, you can read the um, the McCall's article um, about going down in the coal mine, and it's shockingly accurate if you're aware of the of the area. And you know, he uses a phrase right off the front of the bat. They're taking the elevator down in the... Um, down in the mine, and he, he starts with the line, says, it's a journey that held the thread of endlessness. And I'm like, that does not show up in uh, a newspaper article anymore, you know. And, but it was, it, but for anyone who has coal in their family, you know, and people who died down there, it is exactly what the, those places were like. So it, 
He's really, his style is um, quite modern, uh, even, and more efficient than today's writers. So he's even um, a better than, a better journalist than I think than a lot of modern yeah. writers. Well, yeah. what he didn't do was incorporate too much of himself in, as yeah. you alluded to just a moment ago. You know, the new journalism of the 1960s or whatever had yet to appear. You know, he was no uh, Tom Wolfe or Gay Talese or anything like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was an author, basically, a, a storyteller, um, working within the context of a journalism piece. And uh, it is a good one. Even though uh, he had a lot of conflict with the magazine over it, they kind of uh, messed it up on him and cut it and changed parts of it and stuff like that. But uh, he continued writing for magazines and newspapers and right up until his death because his novels never really made him any money. His poetry certainly didn't make him any money. No. The things that he loved to do the best, uh, he was not smart with money either. He was very famous, you know, but not rich by any stretch of the imagination. When you say you've done hundreds of tours and that, um, I think, I don't know if we were recording or not when you were talking about this and, and you know, people from all over kind of come to to experience the the Stephen Crane house like are they take us through I'm just a little curious like are, are they knowledgeable on Stephen Crane or? a lot of them are yeah okay. I'm very impressed with some of the people that show up here because they're educators uh, you know college professors in a number of instances uh, they are themselves writers journalists uh, documentary filmmakers they all have a, a very specific interest in Stephen Crane, which remains the number one reason why people come here uh, for these drop-in tours. Number two reason being a, a general history of Asbury Park, which uh, I certainly try to accommodate folks in. And uh, those are far and away the reasons why people come here. And they come here from all over, as I said. Uh, different rooms of the house, uh, you know, I explain different themes to them like the front foyer of the house, is about the house in general and its uh, history. It's a very roller coaster history. Uh, you know, it was boarded up in the 1990s, completely gutted, abandoned, and probably slated for demolition. And one thing that I have to point out to people is, uh, with one possible exception, there's not a stick of original equipment in this house. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the place was just completely stripped clean back then. All you found in it were garbage cans collecting water from the ceiling. And was this one of the, the rooming houses we had, or it was just boarded up? Uh, at one point it was a rooming I thought it house. Was. Yeah, in fact, probably the most stable period of ownership of this house, which, by the way, counting the historical society, has had 25 owners in a little over 140 years. That's a lot. Yeah. You know, you go to other historic homes, they've been in one family for generation after generation, and well taken care of, well documented. They have old furniture and other fixtures from the house. Not so this place. Mm -hmm. You know, we've tried to cobble things together as best we can with uh, donated materials that are kind of of the era that we're talking about. But some of them, as you can see, are not. Like, for instance, uh, right now I am looking around the corner at the sign from the Shell Cocktail Lounge. Not a Stephen Crane artifact, right. but you're familiar with that place, no. right, Amy? I am, I That's am. Uh, quite a bit of Asbury Park history right there. Well, that was brought to the house, and there it sits right now, and maybe someday we'll find a nice forever home for it. Do, do we know how, how many people lived here when Stephen Crane was alive? Uh, when Stephen Crane was alive? Or uh, when, he, when he lived here. Oh, when was he his... lived here, it was just him on and off, as I said, because he kept right. going away to various boarding schools. His mother... Uh, his sister only lived here for about a year before she passed away. And then other family members would have 
occasionally stay here, usually when they were experiencing some setbacks. Bankruptcy? Bankruptcy and <laughs> breakups. breakups. Exactly. <laughs> the two Bs that have fueled Esbury Park history. I know. We should have called our podcast Bankruptcy, yeah, bankruptcy or Breakup. Bankruptcy and Breakup. That's yes. It's not too late. That's our new T-shirt, I think. Yeah, no, totally. Um, <laughs> I think... Um, so how you know, given the the state but, of this, uh, she started taking in boarders. Mrs. Okay. Crane did, yeah, yeah, as I explained. And how many room? How many bedrooms in the house? Well, it's hard to say how the rooms were apportioned back then, but there are uh, three or four bedrooms upstairs, and uh, I don't know, maybe at least one of the rooms down here was a bedroom. But that's just one of the unfortunate facts. We don't know. And was sure. there always the cottage house, or did that come later? Uh, the cottage back there. Uh, would originally have been a carriage house. Okay. Yeah. Well, you had to have some place to stash the pony, for one thing. Of course. Right. <laughs> and uh, very eventually it became uh, renovated into a residence. But the most staple period of ownership after the cranes were done with the place, around 1900, was after World War II. It had passed through many hands in between, including uh, doctors and lawyers and clergymen and boarding house owners and even a local bookie. Hmm. And uh, there was a fertilizer salesman who owned the place in the 1940s. <laughs> he went, can you guess, bankrupt. <laughs> and this house well was done, purchased Tom. for a song and dance at an auction by a couple from Newark, the McCorkendale family. And they fixed the house up a bit, and they opened it as the Florence Hotel, one of many little summer inns on the side streets of Asbury Park, of which... Oh, there were just dozens and dozens around town. Mm. And what year was this? This would have been like 1946, mm-hmm. 47, okay. when they finally opened it. And uh, they ran it for a number of years that way, and eventually it became subdivided apartments, a uh, boarding house in between, and eventually, I guess, what you could call a flop house. Uh, by the 1990s, Asbury Park's fortunes had really fallen, of course, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. McCorkendale had passed away, and their adult daughter, Lois who was an employee of Newbury's for many years downtown. Oh, interesting. Was the only person living in this place, which was completely crumbling, falling apart. And uh, apparently living just in one room of the house where she wrote all over the walls uh, Mm. names and phone numbers and addresses of politicians and state agencies and stuff. Sounds like a real gadfly in her day. Oh, but Asbury was, attracts um, them. Asbury yeah, attracts them. She was eventually placed in a nursing home where she passed away in the mm. early 2000s. And the place was boarded up, as I said. But uh, all, all this time, the providence of the house was known? Like, so, you know, people knew that they, they had a Stephen Crane property? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. It was uh, kind of forgotten by a right. lot of people, including people in the city government. Uh, but there was a gentleman by the name of Tom Hayes, who was and still is an executive at New Jersey Oh, Natural my God, Gas. yeah. Yeah, you Love know Tom. Tom, right? He's very well known. Yeah, he's a great guy. Town. Uh, he found out from a neighbor that the houses had association with Stephen Crane. And he purchased this house and the house behind it on this same lot back in 1995 for the price of $7,500. So that was Asbury Park Real Estate in 1995. And he began the arduous and still very much ongoing process of fixing the place up. So he hung up the first sign that said Crane House in 1996, and we observed our 25th anniversary last year, mm-hmm. in 2021. And a few years later, he sold the house to his next-door neighbor, who was Mr. D'Alessandro. 
you know, Frank uh, would eventually move into the cottage in the back of the property, and he kept up the uh, renovation program for the house. And He's did the one Frank who... do tours too, Tom? Pardon? Did Frank do tours as well? Oh, yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. He invited a lot of school groups here. And, uh, you know, anybody that requested a tour would pretty much get one from him. Uh, we didn't have open house hours yet, though. The reason for that being a lot of the people who scheduled tours wouldn't show up. Right. So, <laughs> you know, we encouraged them to just come at a specified range of hours every week, and that worked out a little better. And you still do that on Sundays, right? Yes, I do, yeah, throughout the year, except this year because uh, Christmas and New Year's Day are both on Sunday, so we'll be closed then. But mm -hmm. uh, any other time of the year, you know, winter, spring, summer, and fall, if you can find a parking spot anywhere in town in the summer, you can still come here on a Sunday and take a tour. You won't find a parking spot. No, so also if you could take a scooter <laughs> or the train, the, the train or an Uber, that That's would it. be NJ helpful. NJ Transit will get you to Asbury Park quite quite safely. Yeah. It's a few blo just a few blocks walk from the train station. And the Crane House has really been a cultural resource in, in Asbury. T tell us a little bit about your vision. H how do you want it to move forward? Well, I see the Crane House as, you said, uh, a cultural resource for the entire community. This is... Uh, not just a genuine literary landmark, really the only one in the area, but uh, a living, breathing place where yeah. history comes alive and where we make new history. Uh, we have events here as best we can. Of course, we had to sideline them for a while during the pandemic interlude. But we were just creaking back into gear. As I mentioned, we had the very well-known author Paul Auster here a couple of weekends ago. He wrote an epic-length biography of Crane last year, and he did a reading from that and a meet-and-greet and signed some books, and it was great. And we filled the place for the first time in a long time. We had around 40 people here, a very engaged audience, asking some great questions. And uh, the discussion was moderated by Professor Stanley Blair of Monmouth University hmm. and uh, Mike Newton from the Asbury Book Co-op, who was our presenting partner for the events. And uh, that's one thing I've liked to do here as I program this place is to work with other nonprofit entities around town. For instance, uh, this event is going to come to pass before this podcast will be heard, but on December 11th, we're having a little presentation of a Christmas carol uh, by a traveling literary theater group. And we're going to raise money and donations for the Kiwanis Club, the new Kiwanis Club of Asbury Park, and their mm -hmm. toy drive, which they inherited from uh, Connie Breach of the police department. Mm -hmm. And every time that we do an event, you know, we like to raise money, whatever we can. Uh, back around Halloween, we did our first Halloween program in a while. We did the New Jersey premiere of a movie called 645 by the independent filmmaker Craig Singer, former Disney executive. And it was filmed almost entirely in Ocean Grove and Asbury Park. How was it? Including some scenes filmed here, although they got slashed and axed and chainsawed to the cutting room floor. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. You know, nice grisly time loop of terror horror movie. I got a nice crowd. We got the uh, congregation of the Horror Church Movie Club out for that. Yeah. And we raised money for the Asbury Park Arts Council and their AP and 3 Film Challenge, which... Uh, at its award ceremony later that night, you know, we presented a donation to them. So the Arts Council has in turn named the Crane House and the Historical Society to its list of cultural resources, 
on the uh, arts and culture master plan that they presented to the city, which we appreciate very much. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't see this place as a dead spot in the road, you know, not just a dry museum filled with old furniture and stuff. Immerse, uh, more immersive interaction. It is, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I'm constantly scouting out new ways to connect with other organizations around town. So we do have some other uh, events coming up that I guess I could talk about. Uh, sure. The yeah, give us a, yeah. when this is going to be heard. Uh, in January, early January the 8th, uh, we're going to have a singer-songwriter named James Dalton, who has played around the area quite a bit and who has amassed enough stories about his experiences playing the shore scene to write a little songs and stories play about it called Asbury Park and Me. Hmm. This was seen at the UK Fringe Festival earlier this year, and it will be the actual U.S. premiere of this thing here oh, wow. at the Crane House on January 8th as a tie-in to the Light of Day Winterfest. Mm. Okay. And uh, we're going to have, uh, this is not set up yet, but we're going to do something with the Asbury Park African American Music Foundation. We love that. February. Got to brainstorm that. In March, we're going to uh, try to bring attention to another Asbury Park-based writer who has kind of been forgotten over the years, a woman by the name of Margaret Whitmer. She was an Asbury Park native who incorporated versions of Asbury and Ocean Grove and Wanamasa into her novels and short stories, hmm. and who was actually the first winner of what later became known as the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, and uh, has very, very deep connections to Asbury Park. So we're going to have Professor Blair again return here and do a nice presentation on her local connections, and we're going to screen a silent movie that was made from one of her novels. And that is in March which uh, we haven't totally nailed down the date yet, but that's Women's History Month, and that's when we're going to do that. And more stuff to come. Just a moment ago, before we started recording, we talked about uh, doing a poetry event here sure. in April, which is National Poetry Month. So you can uh, monitor our social media for the Asbury Park Historical Society and the Stephen Crane House to see updates and all that stuff. And are you Facebook and Instagram? Uh, I, myself, am not on Instagram. We are on Facebook. Uh, the Historical Society is on Instagram. Okay, great. And uh, there, usually I, I, I concentrate on Facebook because I can stretch out and write long stuff. Right. Is there a, the Stephen Crane House has its own website, yes? Uh, actually, it does not anymore. Okay. It is a website within a website. You have to go to the aphistoricalsociety.org. Okay. And then you can click on the Crane House uh, to get there. And if someone wanted to donate to help support the Stephen Crane House, they would go through the AP Historical Society yes. as well. Mm. Or just throw it in the plastic jar and yeah. on the desk. <laughs> Leave it on the porch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you put my favorite calendar together, Tom. Can you talk about that for one minute? Uh, you're talking about the one I did a couple of years ago. I'm talking about every year when you guys do this calendar. Uh, do not. Do well, it every although year. not. Well, you, yes. Okay, the two years that this year and then the year before last. Yeah. Well, I have a brand new one out this year. And this is a fundraiser for the Asbury Park Historical Society. It's called Soundings from Asbury Park. It's a 2023 calendar. It's about the size of a record album cover. And it has everything to do with the music history of Asbury Park. And believe me, you'll learn a lot. If you thought you knew the musical history of Asbury Park, you had another thing coming. I know I did, just no. researching this thing. It's got all these... Uh, I'm afraid if you want to write your dentist appointments and you're going to have to buy another calendar because yeah. all the little blocks are taken up. It's pretty action-packed. None of us can afford a dentist. Yeah, well, landmark recordings, question. landmark concerts, uh, 
rekindle a lot of memories just thumbing through this thing. Mm. Uh, birth dates, memorial dates, and other weird stuff, like uh, just to confirm Paul McCartney really did eat at Jimmy's Italian restaurant. Mm. Yeah. Ellington really did mm. wash dishes at a hotel. And the great Caruso himself, this is something I didn't know going into this project. Yes, he performed in Asbury Park, but where was it? It was Steinbeck's department store? Oh, my God. Yeah. What, really? Yeah. In the record department, the Victrola department. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, the, the calendars are great. Yeah, great. I've, I've, I'll, yeah I'll, so they are I'll available. Them. Actually, uh, yeah, where can you buy those? at a discounted price. We mm. just discounted them. For sixteen ninety nine through the Asbury Park Historical Society website. And they're also available at a few retail outlets around town, including the two fun house stores in Asbury Park. Oh, great. And in Ocean Grove at Gifts by Tina and at Comfort Zone. So, yeah, I did a previous calendar for the sesquicentennial year. And, uh, yeah, we sold that one out right away, actually. And, uh, I gave it as a couple of Christmas gifts. Yeah. Well, once again, that's a keeper. You know, yeah. once the year is over, you keep that one around. Yeah, no, absolutely. File it with the pizza boxes up on the bookshelf, you know. So, Tom, before we go, speaking as the, Stephen, the curator of the Stephen Crane house, um, if someone wants to get into Stephen Crane, um, you know, there's, you can always start with The Red Badge of Courage, but would you recommend they, they read anything else? i got to reread The Red Badge of Courage because I agree with you. It was forced down my throat, so it could have been a brilliant <laughs> book. You know what I – the Holden – who's – what's the name of the title of the Holden Caulfield book? Because I recently reread Catcher it. In the Rye. Catcher in the Rye. I recently reread Catcher in the Rye and thought it was a great book, but it was another one shoved down my throat that exactly. I was like, well, If you take the pressure off, you have a different reading experience altogether. Totally. I think if you're an adult, too, I think – you know, uh, what is the Fitzgerald, uh, Fitzgerald book? Um, the Gatsby. <clears throat> Gatsby – you made no sense to me. They shouldn't read it in high school because you're not old enough to understand what's going on. I remember reading it in high school. Don't care. First time through as an undergraduate, didn't, didn't. And I was like, eh. I think the next time I read it, I was 25. And I was like, oh. Hit me like I a hammer. I had a similar experience with Kate Chopin's The Awakening. That yeah. was another one that was forced on me in high school. And I was like, eh. And then I reread it within the last few years. And yeah. I was like, oh, what a brilliant fucking book. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I read The Awakening and when I read Gatsby, they were both outside of high school they were both uh, going to be in a curriculum from what i understood but you know things always like creaked along and you never got to the last books on the list for the year and like you know gatsby was going to be one of them but i went ahead charged ahead and read it anyway and became a big fan of f scott fitzgerald in the process but i probably would not have liked it so much if i had to read it Absolutely. if i had to write an essay about it reading know? in high school makes no sense you're like who are these people you yeah. know it doesn't make any well, sense i was reading a lot yeah. but you know all stuff that was off the curriculum there. You know, mm -hmm. back then I read a lot of like sci-fi and detective novels and things like that. Yeah. You know? And I still enjoy that stuff to some extent. But I'll get read back. One thing I library. never read, it didn't really exist to that extent back in the 70s when I was in school, but uh, young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, now you've got this humongous marketplace for yeah. it. But I, I didn't want to be called a young adult. I wanted to skip straight to adults. You right. Know? <laughs> So my, and now as adults, I read a lot of young adults. <laughs> I know. So you read Harry Potter every day. So the uh, you know as a so I'll make my plug. If you're interested, in, if you like Emily Dickinson, read we pick up War is Kind as a, his poetry uh, collection. It's quite interesting. To well, read. the entirety of Crane's poetry can be collected in one pretty slim volume. Yeah. he didn't write a lot of it, but it was very impactful, and uh, it really resounds and resonates to this day. I think. Me, I like his journalism. That's a little mm -hmm. bit of a tougher slog, I think, for people. I wouldn't recommend starting there, 
But uh, I think a good place to start with Crane would be a nice collection of his short stories. Because mm-hmm. uh, he wrote a lot of masterful short works. And, and uh, you know, you can work your way up from there. I had to take a crash course in Crane myself, yeah. you know, when I well, moved here. You might recommend The Open Boat, because he was yes. also a survivor of a shipwreck. Absolutely. Right. And so The Open Boat uh, was an account of that. So that's an, you know, that's an yeah. accessible. Well, that's one of the best things he ever did, really. Yeah. And, you know, almost killed him. And, um, you know. Uh, what a life, you know. Just before 28, 28 years. you know, yeah. correspondent in two wars, survivor of a shipwreck. Um, and by the end, he's living in England with his common-law wife, Cora Crane, who, if you ever read a biography of her, is a fantastic character. We did a world premiere of a one-woman play about her here last year. Uh-huh. And they weren't married, of course, you know. Yeah. She outlived him by a number of years. But uh, their house, their drafty old manor house in Sussex, became uh, this salon of sorts for all these other famous writers who were all hung out at the Crane Place. Uh, yeah, people he, like Henry James. Henry James Ford, Maddox Conrad. Yeah. Yo. James Barry, Peter Pan creator, H.G. Uh, Wells. You mentioned Joseph Conrad. He was great friends with Joseph Conrad. He was, yes. Crane, interestingly enough, is, you, know, you mentioned a lot of visitors come from around the world. I think he's well regarded outside, you know, like many American artists, well regarded outside of the country a little bit more widely than he is here because of his presence in the curriculum as a chore. You know, no one, you know, something you had to read. A lot of fans in England. Yeah, Yeah, he was huge, but made no no money. (laughs) No, he was not smart with money for sure. Uh, When he signed the deal for Red Badge of Courage, he pretty much signed away most of the reprint rights and foreign Mm. rights and all that stuff, you know. And there's more to him. So you read a a biography, uh, the Wikipedia article on him is very comprehensive, you know, because, um, you know, scandal, you know, lots of interesting scandal. Uh, but so anyway, that's it for us uh, today. Uh, and um, again, Stephen Crane House information can be found on the Asbury Park Historical Society website. Uh, tours for the Stephen Crane House are available on Sundays at noon. 12 to 2 every Sunday or by appointment. Except for Christmas and New Year's. Don't dare come on those days. And otherwise, uh, you know, come see, uh, come see the house. Amy, anything else you want to add? No, that's it. That's it. Yeah. You're great, Tom. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Appreciate it.